Y'all have to bear with me this morning. I'm a little under the weather. Uh, My throat's a little scratchy. It's not because I yelled too much at the game yesterday. I spent most of the game with my head in my hands, not saying anything, probably like the rest of you. So I might have to take a break every now and then, take a swig of the good old Gatorade. Mark, can you mute me whenever I do that? No? Okay. I'll swallow quietly then. Thank you guys again for being here this morning. It's, it's really special to be able to uh, share this message with you this morning and share God's word uh, because in 2005, I was just like all these students. I was here as a student. And uh, Grace and our, was very formative in my college years. There was no RUF here, uh, but what reform ministry was here, I was a part of. And so, um, I don't know, in a lot of ways, this is coming full circle for me. So it's been fun to meditate on this passage this week, and um, I'm excited about sharing what God has taught me this morning with you. Uh, This semester at RUF, we've been studying a series I've called We Believe from the book of Luke, and we're studying the core doctrines of the Christian faith throughout the book of Luke. uh, Luke wrote his gospel for a young man named Theophilus so that he would have certainty about the things about Jesus that he had been taught. So we're trying to give our students um, certainty, uh, our Christian students, we want them to be strong in their faith, and for non-Christian students, we want them to begin to ask, what do they believe? Think through the things that they believe, and hopefully that they would come to embrace the gospel. So this morning, um, we are going to talk about this great kingdom that we believe in as Christians, from Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21. Before I read the passage, I want to give you just a little bit of context Jesus was teaching in the synagogue on a Sabbath, like he did often. And this particular Sabbath, there was a woman there who'd been disabled for 18 years. Um, Satan had bound her so that she was bent over and she couldn't stand up. On the Sabbath, Jesus looked at her and said, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And she stood up. Of course, the religious people got angry and upset at Jesus because he was showing mercy on the Sabbath. And to them, he was working. He criticized, the the ruler criticized him and rebuked him. Jesus called him a hypocrite. And he said, if you had, who, who has a donkey and doesn't water it on the Sabbath? Ought not this woman be freed from Satan on the Sabbath day? So he put this religious leader to shame and everybody rejoiced. So Jesus on the Sabbath here has experienced opposition from inside the church. And then he does something interesting. Um, I think either Jesus said it right after this or Luke, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, put these two passages together. But Jesus then begins to teach on the kingdom and describe what the kingdom of God is like. And this is what he says. Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this good word that you've given us. And we come to you this morning in the midst of opposition all around us. Uh, the world and the devil 
would love nothing more than to destroy your church and us in it. We also experience opposition in our own hearts. Our sinful flesh wages war against us every day. But you promise to rescue us through Jesus, to save us from our opposition, and to make us your people. And so we pray right now, through your word and through your spirit, that you would work in our hearts and our minds, that your kingdom would expand in us, and it would be a part of its expansion all over the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I moved to Stillwater in the fall of 2000 to be a freshman at Oklahoma State University. Uh, And when I moved here, I was a Christian, but I hadn't been a Christian for very long. I grew up in a non-Christian home, became a Christian when I was about 17 years old. But when I went to college, I very much wanted to grow in my faith. And uh, because I was a country boy and I grew up on a farm, I really only knew how to do two things, work hard and play hard. So I just assumed that to become a better Christian, to grow in my faith, I had to work hard. So I threw myself into everything that I could to try to grow. I went to Bible studies all the time. I read my Bible all the time. Uh, Not really all the time, but in my mind I was trying to read it all the time. I tried to pray. I tried to be a good fraternity brother to my my brothers. Um, I tried to share the gospel whenever I could. I, I tried to do everything that I thought that I could to grow in Christ. And those are all good things. All good things. The problem was that the sin in my heart was building a ladder. And everything that I did, I thought I was taking one more step on that ladder to get me closer to God. And after two years of of that kind of self-effort and self-improvement, I was exhausted, I was tired, I was self-righteous, I was burnt out. And then one day, I was talking with my friend Michael Phelps at the Qdoba at 61st and Yale in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We were eating burritos, and we began to talk about Calvinism. And he began to tell me about the free grace of the gospel that before the foundation of the world, before I had done anything to merit salvation, God had set his love on me. And that because my salvation started with God, my salvation ended with God. And that lifted the weight off my back. Like a, it was like an 8,000-pound gorilla just jumped off of me. And all of a sudden, I felt this freedom to love God out of delight and not out of duty. This is the first major thing that really shifted my, my spiritual course. Um, and then the second thing was this. Uh, shortly thereafter that, Mike invited me a, to a Bible study at another Mike's home. Uh, this man's name was Mike Dodson. Uh, Mike Dodson had led Bible studies in his home for years. And so uh, a number of my fraternity brothers, every Thursday night would go to Dodson's house. You'd walk in, and Victoria, his wife, would have just a plate, a table filled with desserts waiting on you. You walk in, you just, the brownies just filled your nose as you walked in the house. And, and Victoria and Mike would be there to greet you, and Tom and Marsha would be there as well. So Mike and Victoria would, would um, I'm sorry, Mike and Tom would do Bible study with the guys, and Marsha and Victoria would do Bible study with the girls. So we'd all come, and we'd stand around, 
we would talk, we'd fellowship, and we'd split up and go into our Bible study time. And this semester, when I, my first semester there, we studied a book by, called Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. And the whole premise of that book is that we're not only saved by God's grace, but we're also sanctified by God's grace. That our entire life is lived out from beginning to end by God's grace. And the entire Christian life, from A to Z, is nothing but the gospel. And again, the weight of legalism and self-righteousness just came off my back. And what I experienced there, in their home, and as I began to study Reformed theology, as I began to grow in Christ, was that the kingdom of God is a home of transforming grace. It's a home of transforming grace. Grace. I want to ask you, what is your story that led up to you coming here this morning? What's your story of how you came to faith? What is your story about how you came to grace and how you came to RUF? How has God been at work in your life to bring you here, to bring you into his kingdom? And this morning, what I want you to see as we look at these two parables is that God has a kingdom that is ever-expanding. And he is bringing his sons and daughters into that kingdom so that they can experience his transforming grace. When Jesus describes the kingdom in this parable, he is describing something that's growing, that's, that's expanding. And as it grows and it expands, it transforms. We see this in both of the parables. If you look at verses 18 and 19 again, Jesus compares the kingdom to to a grain of mustard seed. Now the kingdom is God's rule and reign that he manifests through his church. And and the first way he describes it is as a grain of mustard seed. Now a grain of mustard seed is is the tiniest seed that they probably had. It was probably about a millimeter in size. They would plant it, and it would grow. We're not sure exactly what type of mustard seed tree this is, but um, uh, you know, depending on which variety it is, it could have grown to about 8 feet tall, or it could have grown to 25 feet tall. So it, be, it could become a pretty big tree. But what's, what's equally incredible about that is that a mustard seed isn't necessarily a tree. It's a bush. But what Jesus is saying is that God's kingdom is so powerful so expansive, so transformative that, it's king, that the kingdom takes things and supernaturally transforms them. That this tree that God is creating is something supernatural. Something that starts out very small and grows into something much bigger, much more powerful, unstoppable. Whenever I was in Tulsa, we lived at a house at uh, 49th and Rockford. It was an old house. It was built in the 1940s. And so it had very mature old trees around the house. Uh, we bought the house, and, and not long after that, I went back in the, in the backyard, and I was sort of cleaning things up and trying to get it looking respectable. And I went to the side of our house, and there was this massive tree. And right smack dab through the middle of the tree was a fence. And down by the roots of the tree was a concrete sidewalk that was all broken up. That tree had grown up through the fence and destroyed the concrete sidewalk. 
the growth of that tree was unstoppable. It had gone from something small and tiny into a tree that could not be stopped, that provided shade for my house and my neighbors, and the birds of the air would come and nest in it, and they would poop on my car, and it was annoying, but it was okay because it was beautiful. But it was unstoppable. And it was big, and it was powerful. That's what God's kingdom is like. It's a must, it, it's, it starts out small. It grows into something bigger. It grows into something that, that birds can rest in. The birds of the air made nests in its branches. It's a place where birds can rest. It's a place where people can rest. God's kingdom is a place where you can come and rest in the gospel. And that's one of the hallmarks of Reformed theology is that we say that coming to Christ means that we receive him and we rest in him. That's the first way he describes the kingdom. And the second way he describes the kingdom is of yeast. He says, it's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, I don't know that much about cooking. Shocker. But my wife does. Okay? And I, I watch her in the kitchen. And I know that it doesn't take a lot of yeast to make pizza. Okay, that's what we make a lot. We put yeast in it. Jesus is describing a very small amount of yeast that makes a, a huge amount of bread. Uh, one commentator said enough to feed 150 people. Another commentator said enough to feed 400 people. Our measurements were a little off you know, from now. You know, it's hard to know exactly how things compute from now until then. But the idea is there was a bunch of food that was here. It was growing, expanding. And not only that, it was transforming. Um, before I became a minister, I was a seventh grade science teacher, and so I taught like some basic chemistry stuff. And one of the things I remember about our basic chemistry that we taught these seventh graders was that there's a difference between cooking and baking. Guys, listen up here. You'll, you'll impress a lady someday, okay? There's a difference between cooking and baking. When you bake something, it undergoes a chemical reaction so that it becomes something different. In cooking, you have essentially the same thing, but when you bake something... There's a transformation that occurs within that thing so it becomes something new. So I think what Jesus is pointing at is that when the good news of the gospel gets into your hearts, it transforms you. You become something new. It permeates every aspect of your life so that you're changed. Just like Greg talked about earlier. I didn't even tell him to do that. He just did it. You're a good RUF student, Greg. So the picture that Jesus is painting here is a kingdom that is ever-growing, ever-expanding. It's a home of transforming grace. And this is the same picture that we see throughout Scripture. Right? Where, where does the Scripture start? It starts with one man. And that one man was supposed to uh, spread and God's glory all over the earth with that one woman, Eve. And then they sinned. So what did God do? God said, I'm going to send a seed, a human seed, not a tree seed, because I'm going to send a seed. And that seed is going to crush my opposition. And all through the Old Testament, you know what God does? God protects that seed. That seed continues through Noah. It continues through um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs. It continues through Moses. It continues through David. 
Throughout the Old Testament, God's people experience internal and external opposition, trying to destroy that seed, but God protects it, and God cares for it because he's creating a home of transforming grace. And then when the time was right, that seed became a man, and the womb of the Virgin Mary became tiny, became small, became weak, became hidden, and became a baby in a manger. Think about how small that is, how hidden, how unassuming that is. That seed grew in favor with, in wisdom and favor with God and man. Um, his name was Jesus. And he faithfully served God as a prophet, a priest, and a king throughout his entire ministry, despite experiencing opposition from Satan, sin, the world, the flesh, everything you name it, all opposed Jesus, just like we, we talked about in the passage earlier. All opposed him throughout his ministry, but he was faithful. He was an unbreakable tree that couldn't be stopped. Couldn't be stopped even at his death. The opposition opposed him all the way to his death on the cross. And they thought they had him. They thought they killed him. They thought it was over, but it was just the beginning. Because see, once a seed dies, once it goes in the ground and it dies, what does it do? It produces a tree. Um, Maximus of Turin. I don't know who that is. Sounds old and smart, though. And I like what he said here. He says this. Born a man, Jesus was humbled like a seed, and in ascending to heaven was exalted like a tree. It is clear that Christ is a seed when he suffers and a tree when he rises. That Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, was fulfilling the prophecy in Ezekiel to create a tree so that all the nations would come and rest in him and be transformed. We see that play out in the book of Acts where the gospel spreads to all nations. Guided by the Holy Spirit, the church takes the gospel to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And over time, we continue to see the gospel spread and spread and spread despite uh, as J.C. Ryle says, it said, he says, yet in spite of persecution, opposition of violence, Christianity gradually spread and increased. Year after year, its inheritance become more numerous. Year after year, idolatry withered away before it. City after city, country after country received the new faith. Church after church was formed in almost every quarter of the earth went then known. Preacher after preacher rose up, and missionary after missionary came forward to fill the place of those who died spreading that God's kingdom all over the face of the earth. Another commentator says this, By the beginning of the third century, there were thriving churches in every province of the vast Roman Empire. Like birds flocking to a mighty tree, the nations were coming to Christ. From Europe, Christians carried the gospel to the Americas, and after that to Asia, Africa, and Australia. An expanding kingdom, a transforming kingdom, a powerful kingdom. And eventually, the branches of that kingdom reached into Oklahoma and reached into Stillwater. Um, there were two very pivotal ministries that helped form Grace Stillwater and RUF. They're the Navigators and the Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination. If you know the Navigator history, in 1930s, a man named Dawson Trotman 
started the Navigators. They were a discipleship-focused ministry. He began teaching high schoolers how to mentor each other one-on-one and do discipleship practices. Then in the 1960s, the Navigators planted a campus here at Oklahoma State, the Oklahoma State Navigators. They had um, good growth and vibrant ministry all through the 70s and 80s. And then in the 1990s, um, with, there was a, they had another huge boom in growth um, thanks to the ministry of men like Jimmy Covey, Mike Dodson, who I was telling you about earlier, Doug Servan, I believe Gary Hine was a part of that ministry, and many, many others. And a lot of them became reformed. And reformed theology sort of caught fire in the Navigator ministry. And at one point, they had a huge, vibrant ministry of, of 200 and something students. And these students embraced reformed theology. Well, over time, as campus ministries do, staff change, student change, things kind of disintegrate a little bit. And those, but those students still had a love of Reformed theology. So about 20 of them, um, including maybe Terry and Aaron, wanted to find a Presbyterian church and a Reformed campus ministry. So they began driving from Stillwater to Heritage Presbyterian Church every Sunday for worship, which is about 40 minutes away. And when they would go there, the church would make them lunch and give them gas cards to thank them for coming. So they did that for a number of years. And then during the midweek, Heritage would send a pastor up here, and they would lead a Bible study for some of the college students who actually met in the home of Mark and Rhonda Tower. They were proto-RUF. Mark and Rhonda were proto-RUF. And then the other group of RUF students were meeting with Tom and Marsha and Mike and Victoria in their home. And so you had these students that wanted Reformed theology. They wanted the PCA to be here. Um, They kept uh, a man named Matt Wiley started bugging the PCA to plant a church here. And finally, after he bugged him enough, it took him, I don't know, like five years or something like that of bugging him. He finally called up one one day and said, I've got a pastor for you. His name's Jonathan Dorst. And in 2003, Jonathan Dorst moved here to start Grace Stillwater. Um, He only had a few names. A lot of them were Fiji's and Kaios. So most of his first Bible study was Fiji's and Kaios and, and Gary Hine and a few adults. Maybe Aaron and Terry, were you guys there at the first Bible studies? Aaron was, but you weren't. You were skipping. <laughs> the, the goal was always to plan an RUF along with grace. Well, it took them uh, six years, from 2003 until 2009. And then finally in 2009, Daniel Killian and his family moved here to start RUF Uh, According to Bethany and Jordan, who I think were probably there at the first Bible study, they said there were about 10 to 15 people there in the first Bible study in Daniel's home. Uh, And over his next four years, it grew into a thriving ministry on campus with a bunch of fun-loving students who loved to play ultimate Frisbee and camp out for hours before football games and watch Lord of the Rings. Am I right? Is that a pretty accurate description? Yeah. And then in 2014... Um, Daniel and Jonathan left for different reasons, and then the Hatfields and the Bakers came. And the Bakers took over Gray Stillwater, and then Sherry and I took over RUF. Um, And it's continued to be a growing, thriving ministry of students who want to passionately love each other, study theology, love their neighbor, share the gospel, and just see the gospel spread all over campus. And I can tell you that at every step of the way, All throughout that that history that I just gave you, there was opposition. There was opposition from sin in our own hearts, the sin of self-righteousness and immorality and unbelief. 
and there was sin and opposition outside, attacking Grace Stillwater, attacking the ministry of RUF, trying to tear it down. And it threw everything it could at this ministry. It threw everything it could at the tree, but it couldn't stop it. Because Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's the king of the church. It's his bride. He loves it. He's going to protect it. And as long as he's ruling and reigning in heaven, his church will be here on earth. Can I get an amen? And what God is doing in Grace Stillwater and what he's doing in RUF is what he's always been doing. He is providing an expanding kingdom that is a home of transforming grace. And I know over the last six years, it has been an absolute privilege to see God's grace expand to these students and to Grace Stillwater. Um, and it's funny, this passage talks about how it starts small and it grows, and it also starts hidden, like you don't really see it. And it's amazing when you think about ministry, how many, how many things happen that are hidden, and they're just kind of small, and you don't really see them, but they're powerful. Um, I mean, I've seen the gospel work in, in just a myriad of different ways. Um, I've watched it work at, at dance parties and game nights and road trips where students learn that all of life can be worshipped and that you can glorify God and enjoy him in everything. Um, I've, watched it, I've watched it work at large group where hundreds and hundreds of students have come not to play games and to be silly and to do whatever, but to hear the gospel and sing about the gospel and try to live out the gospel. Um, I've watched the gospel work in, the, in deep recesses of the student union. You know, you can find these, these spots where you can sit and you can talk and nobody else can hear you. And students have opened up by their struggles with singleness and dating and sexuality and pornography. And they found true intimacy in Christ with God. And they're experiencing the, the, um, the cleansing powers of God's grace. Um, I've watched the gospel work in the food court and at the Jesus table as, as small conversations turned into deep talks on theology and sometimes arguments. Um, I've watched the gospel work in small groups as students have bared their souls to each other openly and honestly. And they've loved each other and cared for each other and walked with each other. And I've watched the gospel work behind closed doors in my office uh, when students come in and they share their deepest sins their sufferings, their struggling. Um, and behind those tears, you see the gospel work, transforming people, giving people a home of grace, giving people a tree to rest in, making people new. Um, one of my favorite things to tell my students is that they all want to know what God's will is for their life. What's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? And I tell them, I don't, I don't know what job you're supposed to take. I don't know what major you're supposed to have, and I don't know who you're supposed to date. But I can tell you this about God's will for your life. No matter what you're going through, God's will is to make you look more like Jesus. And whatever's happening right now is going to make you look more like Jesus. And he is powerful enough to do it because he, rose his son, because he brought his son out of the grave. And he is good enough to do it because he's your heavenly father. And we can trust him. God has been at work giving students a home of transforming grace for them to rest, 
for them to change, for them to grow. And it is at home that he is happy to provide for them. I think that's one of the most amazing things about God and his grace is he just loves to be with us. He gives and he gives and he gives. He delights to give. He delights to let us rest in him. He delights for us to bring our sin and our shame and our guilt to him because Jesus has paid for that. Jesus can cleanse that. And God the Father loves us in Christ much more than we could ever dare to hope. Um, there's a great children's book uh, by Shel Silverstein called The Giving Tree. And it goes like this. There was a tree that loved a little boy. And the little boy loved that tree. And every day that little boy would come and he would gather the leaves from the tree and he'd make a crown on his head. He'd play the king of the forest. He would climb up the tree. He would swing on its branches. He would eat its apples. He'd play hide-and-go-seek around the tree. And he was tired. He would lean his back on the tree. The boy loved the tree. And the tree was very happy. Well, as the boy grew up, he spent less and less time with the tree. And then one day he came back to the tree. And the the tree said, come back. Come, climb my trunk. Swing on my branches. And the little boy said, I'm too big to climb. I'm too big to play. I want some real toys. And the tree said, well, I'll give you some apples. And you can sell those apples and buy some toys. So that's what he did. The boy took the apples and bought some toys. Time went by, and the boy didn't come uh, back to the tree. The boy didn't come play by the tree. He came back later, and um, he said, um, you know, uh, the tree said, come, come and play with me. And uh, the boy said, I'm too big. I'm too big to, to um, play with you. And uh, the, the tree said, well, what do you want? And he said, I want a boat. I want a boat so I can sail in. And so the tree let the boy cut it down so they get wood and form a boat. And the tree was happy to give himself for the boy. Um, and then a long time later, the, tree, the, the boy came back And the tree said, I've got nothing left to give you. You've taken my apples. You've taken my branches. You've taken my trunk. There's nothing left. I'm just a stump. And the little boy said, you know what? I don't really need all that stuff. I'm kind of old now and I'm kind of tired. I just want to sit on you and rest. And well, the tree said, I'm an old stump and I'm good for sitting and resting. Come and sit on me. Sit down and rest. And that's what the boy did. And the tree was happy. You're never going to exhaust God's love and his grace for you. He's going to keep giving because he loves you and that's what he does. And he wants you to rest in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for um, the glorious um, gift of Jesus Christ that you've given us. We thank you for the tree that he has formed and for the way its branches have reached out to us. And we thank you for your never-ending grace that comes into our lives and transforms us. God, I pray that we would rest in your grace and your love and mercy every day. Thank you for uh, the ministries of um, the PCA and for the navigators for being so 
pivotal in forming our church and our campus ministry. Thank you for all the people who have um, donated and given their time, their energy, and their resources to make this ministry possible. Um, Father, you have used that to give grace to so many people. I pray that you continue to do it. I pray that we would come to you and sit on you and rest in you every day, knowing that you're happy to be with us, that you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.